0: Welcome to another episode. I do not have a way of starting these, but Levi Allen's here. Hey, Levi.
1: Hey, it's good to be here. Yeah, this is nice.
0: Um, we ha- we just started rechatting a little bit lately, which uh, we saw each other in person. Uh, what was that? Two two years ago? No, couldn't be. A year and a half ago at camera camp. Uh, got to yeah, at least a year in a couple months together there. Yeah, and um, yeah, I've been watching what you're doing lately, and it's great to see. If anybody doesn't know, Levi, fellow Canadian and he does adventure and van living like much more um out of studio stuff than i do which is part of what I want to talk about today is like the idea of you want to be a creator right we all want to we all want to like do something creative it's probably why you're listening to the show but what the hell are you going to make a video about like that's great that you want to make videos but are you just going to record yourself sitting and talking in a studio or are you going to go out and capture something interesting so I want to dig into that a bit and Levi's perfect for that because he gets out of the house a whole lot more than I do. Um, how has the year been for you, Levi? Like 2020 was weird. How did it go?
1: Yeah. I, I kind of felt like last year in the trajectory of my online career (laughs) or my creator career, I felt like last year was the year that was supposed to be when a lot of the pieces came together. Um, I was someone who consumed a lot of like audience building advice when I was quite a bit earlier at this. And so I kind of formulated some sort of game plan about why investing all this time into creating videos that I was putting out for free, like what the long game model of that was. And in a lot of ways, last year was essentially kind of supposed to be a year where a lot of the pieces kind of came together as my daughter was born last year. So things kind of got real and it kind of felt like I wasn't, I wasn't supposed to keep just messing around. Um, And that model for me was in-person education, which uh, (laughs) has has some clear flaws in a year where, uh, where, where travel is, is not as ideal. So there was some challenging aspects of last year for sure in that regard, in the way that i thought about what i was doing like what was the point of everything that i was doing but then i feel like we recovered in a sense where i still made some videos that were legitimately challenging and then i felt i felt that process was rewarding so that's what i enjoy about making my own things is doing something that's challenging so we still managed to make the most out of a year that was not ideal
0: (laughs) yeah i mean i had a little bit of that like i had a taste of it with that we made Some courses that were all about travel photography right before it started. I'll put links in the show notes in case anybody wants to see them. I think they turned out great. There's lots of good photography tips in there. Like they're still totally worth watching, but travel, I mean, the name doesn't make sense anymore. And we traveled a lot to shoot them. So it's like, uh, I. I have a feeling we so, and we're not selling them directly. So, I actually kind of don't know the exact numbers of the sell through on it, but I'm like, I bet it's not what they hoped for. <laughs> so, um, I don't know. That was like exactly the same thing. And actually, Johnny Harris was on the week before last. And at the exact same time, while I was creating, uh, or well, Annie and I were creating those projects, he was creating Bright Trip, which is his travel courses. Um, so, it was the exact same thing of like, you know, going all in on teaching travel, and then there's not much of it. So, yeah, it's like readjusting, recalibrating, but you still ended up traveling a bunch through Canada. Uh the fact that you're, you know, driving and kind of living in your own space that comes with you being a big van gives you a little bit more freedom. I think you were able to do a little more traveling than a lot of Canadians were this year. Um and like an awesome thing that uh oh yeah, and we missed each other. You like came through Calgary and I didn't get to see you that day. But uh, what's yeah, the story with van life in general? Like, just get, like, fill me in on the basics of w- what it really means to be, to be living a van life. Cause
1: I haven't done it. I mean, as many different personalities there are, there's different manifestations of what van life can look like. And I would say for us in the second half of last year, it was kind of the nomadic van travel phase. So I've got a wife and I've got a daughter and our goal going into kind of our life has never been hey let's sell all our stuff and just live in a van full-time that was never really like we we never really that wasn't the plan um but what the van offers is a nomadic way to to basically do life on the road for extended periods without having it there's more of an upfront cost than a cost each time you do it so it's a lot easier to go hey, we're not actually doing anything next week. Do we just want to go find a lake somewhere in the backcountry, park up and live there for the week? And that's kind of what our vision was for, is unlocking more freeform travel and not having travel be as much of a burden where you have to pack all your stuff every time and you've got to move your things in and out of the vehicle every time you go out for the weekend. And so for us, it looks like a couple months at a time or maybe just a weekend. And it was pretty cool to spend over half of last year in the van. Even if we weren't traveling great distances, we had planned to go down to sunny, warm places we stayed in Canada into the winter, which is not the most fun, but I mean, it's a lot different now than it was when I first bought the van and was just living in the van out of necessity because I just needed a place to live. Uh, Now it's definitely more of, Hey, we're doing this because we want to. So it's, it's evolved over the years from just a bare bones van to kind of a cabin on wheels now.
0: Yeah. I think it'd be really different depending on where you're doing it. And like doing this in the States sounds a lot more appealing than doing it in Canada. If I'm going to be honest, like the ability to stay warm, <laughs> uh, like I've even, I've even thought about that a little bit is like, it would be great to go down and actually spend just like, like just be in the States for an, like a while going from national yeah. park to national park kind of thing um because in canada it's just so different in the winter like we've had a cold snap right now it was minus 26 7 celsius uh, for yeah. days in a row and it was like you can't really you can't go outside at all like it was brutal the only thing we created was uh the thing where you throw boiling water in the air and it turns into snow instantly <laughs> that's about all we could do like you can't survive you outside. reside yeah, no, it was really cool. It's a great uh, Instagram story on uh, Anya's Instagram, but um, yeah, it, tur- it turned out so one, one positive thing. But at the same time, I mean, I had to shoot like an iPhone video where we're testing doing much camera tests. And It's like the tests of a camera indoors are very different and hard to make exciting. So I don't know. It's been like it's been a bit of a struggle. That's some of my like theme lately. Is like I have I have been struggling (laughs) to like have interesting ideas and kind of uh keep things new and interesting and fresh so i don't know maybe you can help me work through it a little um
1: yeah what's the future of what you want to do with like is it more important for you to make stuff like where do you see what are you finding the most meaning in right now is it content that does like marginally well on the platform of youtube or is it the stuff that challenges you creatively or is it hopefully a mix of both like where, where do you think you're finding the most meaning
0: i mean that's a great question i i'm not i'm not finding it right now is like part of the challenge thing. i've just been um i felt like I had more of a of a direction of like here's what i want to do last year um which was like uh you know get better at um commercial filmmaking which is you know something i've been want like we've been doing more of it as our job and so uh kind of developing a more um, refined cinematography look for that kind of work, uh, that then translates to client work that we do. So I kind of had this idea of a path and we were spending more time in LA working in LA a little bit more. Then all of a sudden we're not going to LA at all. Commercial stuff is slowing down a lot. It's like, okay, well, you know, these, like YouTube is great because you have complete freedom to do whatever you want. Part of the challenge lately is that it feels so circular to just talk about the gear that you make to make videos, right? I mean, I'm sure a lot of us have run into this at various points, but um, that doesn't feel... There's, uh, you gotta be in the mood for it, right? Like when you're excited about some new gear, like it can be really interesting to do. I I, I do love to talk about cameras, um, and the tools that we use to do all this stuff, but if it doesn't turn into something else later, it starts to feel a little like, well, where's this going? Like, what is this going to, how is it going to manifest itself as like a real thing? in the future so uh yeah i mean that's kind of been interesting um live streaming is like an, another excuse to actually explore like what do you do with gear so um we've been doing a little bit more as we are right now uh, of that lately it's also again reminder for anybody listening to the podcast that these are now live episodes barely edited so if they sound different than last year it's because they're they, well they got a different energy going on it's because we're, we're we're just talking live so um next time making, making them more efficient to me too yeah. But so that that's part of like the question. It's like, I don't know, how did you land on the types of films that you were making? And how would you advise other people find the, the if they want to be you know content creators? Yeah, how do you figure out what kind of content you're gonna make?
1: I mean, I definitely relate with what you're sharing about the the gear interest was a massive reason that I found filmmaking so interesting as if we call it an art form, I don't feel like an artist, but I, it technically is an art form. Um, and it's why I probably resonated with that more than let's say painting or something like that. Like I love tech and I love uh, the physical nature of it where you're building out cameras. And that's certain like, I got into climbing when I was a kid, probably more because I liked the the carabiners and the rope and the rigging. I probably liked that more than I did the actual act of climbing itself. And I'd probably daydream more about the rigging. And that's why that hobby hasn't stuck around for me. Because at a certain point, you can only daydream about ropes and rigging. So cameras, for me, like that was kind of the starting point in the back of my high school classes, like researching on nofilmschool.com what the new secret red camera was going to be that year. And is it going to be this budget-friendly new red that everyone was daydreaming could happen? And then the shocking news that it's micro four thirds with a fixed mount lens. Like that's that's not what people wanted. And like, the, like, I just poured over this news, which I, at the time, had no business like digesting because I couldn't afford any of the gear. And that was what stimulated like my interest. And as that evolved, I realized, oh, I could actually buy a DSLR and that would get me this kind of depth of field look. And so I went down that whole rabbit hole. And once you kind of, once that kind of runs dry and there's not any you're, I'm running out of ways to make that challenging or new. My brain started to definitely ask, okay, like, what's the point of all of this? And, and which, what am I going to do with it? Like, that's the big question, right? Like what, what are we, what do we pick up cameras for in the first place? So
0: I almost think a good example of this, uh, of a, like a a genre that I can't relate to, that it's, it's it's weird to me the way people get into it is cars, because car culture a lot of it is spending significant amounts of time um reading about and looking at photos of cars you know you will never own or probably even drive or interact with in any way That's a great point so i know i know there will be listeners that are into car culture i have a lot of friends that are and they try to explain it to me and i can just it's just never clicks to, to with me but I do get excited about gear, but only the gear that I'm going to end up using. Like I only research the cameras I might buy and shoot with someday. I don't know everything about all this stuff I'm never going to use. Cause it just loses interest. That's why I don't know about Nikon cameras. I'm not going to shoot them. So I kind of don't care. Um, but there's <laughs> that whole world of, of, People that are super into cars, and they're going to learn everything about them, uh, spend infinite time and resources, like being extremely aware of memorizing years and models and like, you know, engine details about something they're not going to interact with. And so to me, that interaction doesn't work. It doesn't like it doesn't make me feel fulfilled and I just don't really want to pursue it. But obviously, there are people that it just works for. Like, you can you can have that kind of... Th- your only relationship is, is becoming more aware of things without ever interacting with them. Um, and I can do it for, like, a few hours. You know, I can read a, a watch magazine about $10,000 watches I'm not going to buy. Or I have a book about guitar, like, rare guitars that I'm also not going to buy. Um, but that only lasts for, like, a day or two at a time. It's not, you know, it's not permanent uh, developing my life culture around it. So i i don't know i, I what do you think would you care about cars
1: <laughs> i could see myself caring more about them in the future but cars definitely fit into the avenue for me where like i'm i'm more functionality driven in that sense where i am i like the rig i like rigs so i, I like vehicles that dance. look like people yeah i like the stuff where it looks like people hey they do something with that vehicle and as much as I could probably find a way to relate to like supercar culture or even just like this, whatever step below that, whatever that is. Um, I just, I'm not fully there. Cause I just, I like the practicality of this vehicle can do this kind of, like, I always looked at, could I set up a bed in that? Like that was my purchasing decision with like the <laughs> first vehicles I was it, buying. Yeah. <laughs> can I set up a comfortable bed in the back of that? So that way I can camp in it to work on my own projects for cheap. So that way, it doesn't cost me all this money because no one's going to pay me to make some of these outdoor projects I want to make. Like, that was my thought process. If I lay
0: down in the hood of a Tesla, can I stretch out
1: on a comforter? (laughs) No kidding. But, like, that doesn't mean I'm not really excited about the future of, like, I get excited about electric car tech and driving in the first Tesla, like, that experience behind the wheel of a car like that. Like, that is energizing. And, I, I joke with my, my wife that I would love to have the kind of wealth one day where I could just buy a cheap car and then just rally it on a track and not worry about it breaking. Like there's no consequence, but totally. that's about the extent of my car interest goes is do, does it matter to me if the car breaks and can I afford to just like wreck cars by driving them fast? Oh, this bed <laughs> is perfect. That's exactly yes. Marco yeah.
0: just pulled up a photo in the live stream and you can, in fact, sleep inside of a Tesla. So mystery. solved. is that a model
1: X? Um, is that what that one's called? Or is yeah. that the Y?
0: Yeah, uh, I think that's the I don't know. Actually, somebody else tell me I, again. I'm not the one to ask. I still haven't Tesla driven a Tesla. Which, it's like as, as far as it that's goes, Tesla's, I've been more interested in Tesla's than other cars. But um, still, it's like unless I'm about to buy one, I'm not going to spend that much time on it. So I don't know. I just don't I just don't care. Uh, But like, let's bring the analogy into the the real world of, um, I mean, I I, I think we're mostly going to talk about filmmaking here. Do you do photography as well? Like, I don't see you talk as much about photos as you do about filmmaking.
1: I think there was a deliberate decision at some point where I decided I was going to care about that a little less. And I don't know if that was because, like, when I first bought, like, the first camera I bought that was a proper video camera was a t2i which that was it was it went 5d was released then the 7d was released which was like the crop sensor version and then the canon t2i was the aps-c version of uh, basically what the 70 like the younger version of the 70 because 70 was crop sensor as well so when that came out it's like a photo camera and so then i started taking photos with it and that that thought process of how do I expose this image and trying to frame things nicely, like that was really helpful for me as an aspiring filmmaker, but I didn't find myself daydreaming very much about the kinds of photos I wanted to take. And I've kind of, this is actually a little bit of like an insecurity as a filmmaker for me is even when I use that word filmmaker, I've so often pictured a filmmaker being someone who has ideas that they so desire to bring into the world. Like I picture, insert Hollywood director, I pictured them like with a notepad at nighttime, writing down ideas about which story they're gonna make next. And honestly, for me, like I'm sure the initial interest with video was, hey, these are interesting and cool tools that can do cool visual things. So it was like the cool factor. But then when I started to process those questions, I'd done dozens of test videos of depth of field and whatever, and trying to get slow motion. And once I'd like tested and figured out how to make an image that was somewhat nice, The question of okay well what am i making with this and what i was most interested in is what other people were doing and so then that kind of just brought me down this pathway of what am i interested in well i love outdoor sports i suck at outdoor sports even though i like participating in them so i don't want to make videos of myself doing the outdoor sports it would be way more interesting to film other people and when that sort of cascading i was like there's there's some really really fascinating individuals that participate in the kinds of sports, right? well, even sports, some people argue that that's not the right word, but they do extreme activities where their life is on the line. And I, a camera gets me access to that kind of person to then ask them questions about why do you, why do, you do this? And if I was just a normal person walking up to them on a cliff, and I didn't have a camera, and I was just asking them all the questions about what's motivating them, they would probably uh, tell me to go away pretty quickly, because that's just a little weird. So I just, the access that a camera got me to real life people that were doing weird and bizarre things. That is what has kind of just been my motivator most of my career. So it's like the first half was, hey, let's research. And then the second half was, let's use all these tools to actually do stuff that's maybe adding to the conversation. I don't I don't know if it's more, I don't know if that's the biggest driver of trying to add to the conversation, whatever that means. But the the driver for me has always been I don't really feel like I have anything to say on video necessarily (laughs) that I think is adding anything. So it's always been, how do I find other people that are doing interesting things? So that's kind of my headspace. And I certainly do feel like I've ran out on that a little bit.
0: I wanted to do, I wanted to have that story when I was like in high school, I was like, I want to just be the guy that shoots all my friends skateboarding. I want to make skate videos. Unfortunately, all my friends weren't very good at it. So the videos I would have made were, you know. (laughs) They were not good it was like us barely getting off jumps and not really landing it so uh you gotta you gotta have the fr- the either social circle of friends or whatever uh, the community near you that you have something worthwhile mm. to show um but like that yeah that's kind of like the interesting uh challenge of it is finding that like what is the motivation that you're going to tell stories about so the you know part of my story part part of the things that like we do for our, a big part of what we do for our work has been, uh, my wife's blog, which was like so much of what got us into creating content for the internet that we get paid for. That was her, her blog was like our first big area of, of working in that. And, um, it was kind of our full-time job for a couple of years, uh, before, like we kind of expanded up to doing more of those things. And in that world, it's like, it's just so completely different where it's about fashion and and lifestyle stuff where, um, you know, it's about, you basically take a photo of a person that looks good and the person looks cool. And that is, that is sort of the goal. It's just like making making a cool looking photo that shows off the, the the clothes or the product, but it's so completely different if you are, say getting into like commercial photography or commercial filmmaking where you're working with a client that is trying to sell something that may not look great on its own like with clothing the clothes are what are, are cool but with uh you know a vacuum the vacuum is not the cool looking thing you got to like tell the story that makes it become the the cool thing that people are interested in so the skill set ends up being so totally different depending on that world that you're approaching it and the expectations of what clients would want to see or what an audience would want to see are just like radically different if you're going to be doing a youtube channel about filmmaking and storytelling uh then you've got to have beautiful images and compelling stories right so it's i i mean i don't know like i'd be curious to, to like kind of come up with some general advice for like young people that are trying to find uh the path that they're going to go down i mean like there's one end is like building this the technical skill set to execute whatever it is you want to do and then the other end is learning about the the thing that you're going to be the, a community like part the community that you want to be a part of and that you want to be capturing and telling the story of um so i don't know how how would you get started if you were uh 18 years old again and you were just like you knew you wanted to create something but you weren't sure what it was yet
1: yeah, I think I think it's more important than ever to, I mean, remind that there's the type of person that watches other people's content and the things that they're consuming, and they go, "There's that little bug in the back of their head that's going, hey, I could maybe do something like this, but my own version.'" And I think most of us that end up making the leap thought that at some point, otherwise we never would have bought some of the gear to start making it happen. Like, it's the, what were ca- you the story. Like, what are just, some things you watched early on that got you into it? Oh, I was like watching uh, Freddie W, who's doing like these, uh, Absolutely. these airsoft vid- airsoft videos, but then like making them like war films. I was watching Devin Supertramp. I was watching uh, the, uh, Luke Newman from Newman Films. He was doing like early videos with the Canon TTY. Um Those were like my big three.
0: <laughs> awesome. Yeah, no, the, I mean, there's a million that I was inspired by, uh, like some early ones for me, like Philip Bloom was one of the first... That I really got into, and that was a long time ago. That he was really like, doing those first major Vimeo videos and stuff, and that was camera reviews. So that's obviously like how I ended up kind of going down this path a little bit more. Um, but like even another example of, I think a, a lot of people have watched Casey Neistat and said like, "Oh, I want to do something like that." Missing yeah. that he he is daily, you know, he's capturing his life. That is effectively what he's doing. But to do that and keep it interesting, you have to live an interesting life like it <laughs> it, it is so critical that like the things you're doing in the in the day are exceptional in some way. you know that they are more compelling than what the person watching's daily story is like um, in some way it doesn't need to be like extreme sports it doesn't need to right. be dangerous or like you know exa- there, there's plenty of people doing things from home. But you've got to find whatever that angle is that's going to make it just a, you know a little more interesting or exciting or, or whatever that this it's a, it it's what they might be familiar with or aspire to but with a twist. Um, so I mean that's just if you are interested in YouTube specifically. But like, but obviously there's so many different paths towards this. I mean, I was just talking about that commercial filmmaking is super exciting for me. Um, right. Do you care about that? Like, do you want to just work directly for clients where you don't appear in it and you're not, you know, directing the story quite as much, but you're telling their story.
1: Yeah. I, I, I realized pretty early on that the making the jump from the, like there's kind of the distinct stages of like the sub $2,000 video stage and then the two to $5,000 and then the first $10,000 video. And like each one of those steps is like a pretty big, it's like a level up the ladder of video production and, your skill sets expanding with it. And I remember the first project that I was on, it wasn't my project, but it was someone else's and it was the first six figure like budget for a three day shoot that I was on. And that like six figures for a three day shoot, isn't that far out there for this, for the certain realm of commercial work that gets done. And in that kind of environment, I realized, you know, I, I don't know if this is like my favorite, (laughs) um, the level of the level of stress that exists on certain kinds of like the more sets, even on the smaller sets, it's just, I wasn't having Were as you much DP fun in that and workflow. I was, I was like, a I was technically like an AC role. So I was helping out the camera operator and the DP, like I was helping them both. So I wasn't like, I wasn't technically in a formalized spot, but I just realized the only version of this that I would like is if I was the one directing, <laughs> like that's the only version here that I would like. And even then I don't know if the environment of that much weighing on that style of project, like, so, okay, so what I liked about it is all these creatives working together for a singular goal. And then what I didn't like about it was the, how much is weighing on these three days going in a specific way that basically is is kind of required for those style of shoots and I so I, I I kind of realized early on that actually set life in those size of projects actually isn't my goal and then I was like well is it the goal to get a check from a streaming service to go make a documentary series and then I realized actually that's its own kind of stressful when the people that you're filming suddenly know you have a big budget that makes things weird. And then you got to get re- location releases out the nine and that becomes really complicated to film. And it was actually what I enjoy the most is just sustain my lifestyle through work. And then with the, e- with the extra time that I can hopefully carve out, just go make whatever it is I want to make. And if, if that cycle can somehow work, then I don't have to be getting the biggest client projects or the biggest uh, commercial work projects. And Hopefully they can feed into each other if I'm doing the creator life thing on the side, but I, I haven't been pushing to do like my ideal client project is like 10 to 15 grand, uh, two to five shoot days and two weeks post time. Like that is the kind of size of client project that I've been taking on these days, which is not as common. Like, it's not like I'm doing tons of them. Um, But that's, like, my ideal size, and I don't have this, like, ambition to scale that that much, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, no, totally. I think something you were talking about at the beginning of that is the idea of, like, wanting to, you know, when you're on a bigger team, you'll quickly realize how little control a lot of the individuals on that team actually have or how much decision-making power, Uh, and I think that leads a lot of people just starting out to think, like, I've got it. That means I want to be a director because then I get to make the decisions. And I thought that at first I was like, oh, okay, so I I want to be a filmmaker. So that means I want to be a director because the only filmmakers I can name are all directors because they get the most credit for the thing. You know, there's this thing about directors and it took a while for me to realize like, oh, wait, no, there's this other job that's called cinematographer that is pretty sweet and actually... Totally lines up with the things that I'm most interested in. Um, So, you know, when we do commercial work, we're at that smaller side of the scale where it's like the size of our crew is max like the biggest crews we do are like 10 people. Um, So it means that usually between my wife and I, we're sort of both like DP and directing together. Like we're just like both making these decisions and kind of uh, just making it work. But, um, you know, if it was to scale up further, and especially if it was something with, you know, dramatic stakes with characters, I'd have a harder time, you know, like really working with actors to develop like, okay, what is the, what is the energy of this scene that's going to match the previous scene that's going to give continuity with your character? Um, and I, I think a lot of people aren't considering those aspects of what what role they want to play in a f- creative team when they are first getting excited about having that kind of job it's like i just want to have the control i want to be able to make all the decisions so that means i need to be at the very top like the above the line my my name needs to be on the vhs box uh but like you know really that may not be the thing that like makes you feel the most satisfied like if if you love costume design maybe that's the thing you should be doing if you love camera tech there are awesome jobs on sets, where you just get nerdy about cameras all day long. And like that can be your whole thing is like, yeah. you can be you can be a DIT where you're just like, you're worried about the technical capturing uh factors about like, okay, make sure all of our color workflow is going to sync up in, afterwards and that are, uh, y- y- you're able to, you know, capture your time code correctly across all the different cameras and audio recorders and that you're getting the right pieces to post yep. or, um, you know, like, or editing. I mean, that like, editing is such a big part of steli- storytelling too. And just realizing that you don't need to bite off all of it to enjoy the process and possibly enjoy it way more than being at the very top of the chain. I think... I think right now, yeah, there's this idea that's like you're either a director or you're a YouTuber and that there's nothing in between. Um, I just encourage people that are interested in this to like figure out what all the other things they might be able to do could possibly be.
1: It is cool to be a part of the team that is executing well like that. The teamwork aspect of it is probably my favorite. And if we could just be a team that just made things that were fun and cool and didn't have the stress of the client and the producer breathing down your neck making sure that you're <laughs> hitting oh, the deadlines sure. I mean, the and stress, stuff like <laughs>
0: those those big jobs like being the director the thing that you're doing is you're just taking the stress like you are the person that gets yeah. you're going to sure you get the credit if it goes well guess what most movies don't go well most movies are poorly <laughs> reviewed don't have a huge opening and the director just is the one that gets beat up for it. Like it's it's not usually a massive success story and there's a ton of anxiety along the way and you're the one that's burdened with it. So I don't know. I mean, not that I'm trying to talk directors out of uh, pursuing that. <laughs> um, I'm just saying don't necessarily get too focused on that. Like this is the only thing that you that could possibly make you happy, that's all.
1: Yeah, and to to circle back on when we were trying to find some, some, some sort of advice for the aspiring creator out there, I do think if you have a desire to go after it, what I wish I would have told 18 year old me is, uh, figuring out my, like if the creator life, I do think is mostly defined by, especially on a platform like YouTube, it is, what is your approach? And I think YouTube these days really celebrates an approach that has flavor to it or is different or has some aspect to it where it's it's quirky. Like people love unique layers to things more so than they like the perfectly executed version that took you six months. They like, they like the, f- I mean, it's why I get out of all the camera channels that I would ever watch a video of, I, it, when I click on a potato jet video, I know he's probably gonna make me laugh And I think that's probably why his space in the camera world has worked so well for him. So like the aspiring person, I think figuring out your creative approach, creative approach maybe is the wrong word, figuring out like, how do I get more of me communicated through the form of video about whatever topic it ends up being that happening first, I think fits the platform of YouTube well, but then following whatever your curiosity is, the more, I think these days, the more obscure combinations of ideas that you can have that then you bring to the platform of YouTube and go, Hey, here's this thing I made. The weirder, the weirder it
0: is. Yeah,
1: they just celebrate that. Like, I I can't believe some of the stuff that I end up legitimately getting invested in these days, like the guy Doug down in the States, who's building a massive steel sailboat in his yard filming on his iPhone. I'm full in. Like this guy's going Noah's Ark to the nines. Um he probably wouldn't like Ooh. me saying that, but like that's the kind <laughs> of stuff that I I'm 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 here for. Yeah. I'm enjoying it so much. And uh I think figuring out I mean, another yeah, an example
0: it. of this uh lately has been uh Gerald Undone had like last time when when he was here and he was doing the studio tour and we are just sort of chatting about his channel and stuff. And we were talking about that, like, before I met him, and like, you know, we all met at the same time that I met you at camera camp, I didn't realize how how funny he is. Like, he's super sarcastic. Like, it's a super dry comedy that I think goes over most people's heads. I think, until recently, a lot of people didn't realize there was comedy on his channel, because it was so dry, and I love that. Like, that's my favorite. Those are the funniest things to me. Things that most people don't realize were a joke. Um, and he's been right. leaning into it, and I think that's, like, the best. It's, like, he has these really, you know, data-heavy, like, this is all about the specs and about comparisons, and it's, like, yeah. very uh, dense videos. But the fact that he's, like, inserting more and more comedy into it, I think is, like, going to do nothing but good things for him. I to- Like, I'm so there for it. I, I really like it. Um, and yeah, same goes for whatever type of storytelling you want to do. If you just go for like the clean, uh, whitewashed, like generic thing that everybody, that that feels like mainstream audiences are going to love, I don't know, it's probably not going to go anywhere (laughs) or you're going to have a harder time standing out. Oh, for sure. Which I've been doing lately. I mean, so that's, that's like part of my thing lately too. I'm like, okay. Uh, up until recently there was like i had this angle that involved like okay we were traveling um we're doing uh professional production stuff on the side so that's the angle to it so now all of a sudden i'm in this bit of a vacuum where it's like well now there's that stuff is much more in studio and it's much more um i don't know it's much less like int- i don't know unique because we're not like on the road doing crazy stuff so um, like rediscovering a, like, okay, what actually can differentiate the stuff that I'm making from what other people are making is, is, is interesting. I mean, I don't know, this isn't a therapy session for me, but
1: what it kind of is. So. <laughs> I think, I think the, the viewers at home that ha- that maybe aren't in the creative headspace themselves as regularly might be just so encouraged hearing you say that there's like questions about it. Cause I, I could as- probably guess that there's the viewers who have just been loving every upload that you've been putting out. And and would be surprised to hear, oh, you're, you're actually wanting to be more <laughs> creatively stimulated right now. We, yeah. like, your context was just interesting to us. So I think even just like opening up about the fact of, hey, I'm trying to figure out what layers I can add because it's feeling, it's not, I'm not getting, I'm not challenged by it as much. It's not feeling like it has as many layers to it that I find rewarding. Like even just vo- vocalizing that, I think even, I think your audience would, kind of appreciate that because sometimes we're too close to it to even see in our stale versions of our video workflow. We don't even know what's unique about the stale version. So it feels just like, Hey, this is our normal. And it, and maybe the normal gets boring after a while, but there's going to be some aspect of that where the audience knows immediately. Oh no, no, no. In your normal, this is what we still love about it. And it's hard to say what, what your, what your audience aggregate would, would appreciate the most about what you're putting out there. But That's got to be a thing, I would assume. (laughs) Well, I got, okay, I got a good way of of making this more general. So a great question that was
0: posed to me today by Marco, who's editing this as we speak. Um, He was, you know, he's younger than I am and like just getting started. And he's like, what are the skills that you would learn if you wanted to kind of expand your filmmaking career right now? So, you know, he's in his early 20s. He's getting good at cinematography. He enjoys color. um, But like, you know, he isn't necessarily going down like the director path. Um, Like what would make you, if you're just starting right now, what's going to give you the most like, you know, kind of flexibility in terms of filmmaking career in the future or, uh, you know, give you great options. And I'll give you my answer first to set it up a little. My suggestion was um, you're into cinematography. Great. So keep learning about lighting and cameras. Uh, Color is a, a big part of that. You don't necessarily have to go too deep on color to get good at it. And then i also would really recommend for the modern era starting to uh, something that could set you apart is getting good at uh vfx and especially compositing would be a good one or uh three working with 3d within um videos Uh, but just any ability to do one further step of technical production that is right now a relatively rare skill, I think it would take a really long way. So like with me, you know, I'm into like color, lighting, lensing. And then also, I, I kind of have to be on camera. So that has to be another interest. It's like, okay, presentation, you know, how do I so I, in, in like, that's like a thing I have to put attention towards is like being a person in front of the camera. But you know, if you aren't trying to make a YouTube channel that is of yourself, talking to camera, you can scrap all that, which is helpful. Like you know, that that does save a bunch of time in, in terms of skills to learn. So yeah, that was my suggestion. Redirecting it to learn more of the the computer
1: side, a little more like VFXE. I don't know. You got any ideas? I mean, I loved hearing one of my a cinematographer that I've always looked up to, that turned director, Ryan Booth. Um, he he said he was loading yeah, he was Netflix. Yeah. Yeah, he would load Netflix through a Flanders monitor and turn on false color, and he would start memorizing the lighting ratios. So, I mean, I'm not, I don't call myself a cinematographer at all, but with lighting ratios, with false color, you can see there's a like a colored gradient across the, the image to show which areas are at what exposures. And every style of TV show, depending on how the director of photography lit it. Uh, has different ratios going on so you know the the one side the most bright side of the person's face versus yeah this there's a overlay on the video version right now showing what false color looks like and it kind of looks like an alien interpretation but once you see there's usually per monitor there's a color scale that translates to the exposure ire value and there's different scales that you can use but seeing shows through that light Literally, where you actually have it more obviously put in front of you of, hey, the the key light is is this exposure value, and then the fill on the side of the face is a third stop less, and then the background's like three stops darker than that. Kind of internalizing that per the TV shows that you like as inspiration. I think that's a really, that's a good way to develop what your eye is like, and then trying to emulate that is even like taking that a step further. So once you've kind of internalized what those frames look like in false color when you try to go recreate those, that that skill set is so invaluable. But I mean, the advice of diversifying like a unique skill set of value add, I think that that for me was my, my biggest ad. Like what I what I can do uniquely in my career is I can show up as a one-man team with one camera, to a real life scenario, And walk away with a story video that's going to be good that's like what i do and the way that i my unique skill set to sell that to clients is that i know how to build a back end of my website that is a gorgeous proposal that has videos video examples so there's an immediate wow factor and the the client trusts me more because i've done this extra work and so that one two punch of having the skill set to deliver on and then the marketing back end to be able to offer that to a client, those two together, like I'd figure out how to creatively market what I'm doing in whatever. So if I wasn't trying to get clients to pay me to do real life adventure doc style stuff, I would just I would apply that to whatever I was working on. Like figure out how to build a back end of a website that's customized for the person that you're trying to talk to. Cause these days, email is so hard to hold attention and to stand out. And especially when you can't like network in person. So, man, that the ability to build a back end of a website, put a password on it, email that to someone and have it be custom built out that I used to do that with PDFs, but doing that on a website where it like, I realized most people were opening the PDFs on their phones. And so the the things wouldn't scale properly, or I'd put a spell (laughs) in the PDF crap. Yeah. (laughs) PDFs kind of suck for that kind of like showing off material. Yeah. But that skill set, man, I think anybody who wants to get into the visual industry, figuring out how to like show their work in a way that is most uh, outable to like, obviously once you get the visuals onto the webpage, that will be really what speaks for itself. But you'd be surprised how few people when they're reaching out to like, like they think it's so simple to just reach out to someone and go, Hey, like I'm willing to help you out on your set to learn from you. Just let me know. But they, they don't take into account if they're, if they're thinking of sending that to someone, you better believe there's a dozen other people and how in the world is that person going to remember that you exist on the day they have a shoot it's just not it's probably not going to yeah. happen so differentiate yourself by like actually going that extra step and if you build that template on the back end of a website you can just duplicate that and customize it with a URL and a password for each person and that that's free that's you do you do that with your your netflix time and that's going to Man, I love that tip. This is like my best tip that I have for <laughs> <laughs> You gotta I write this down, tip, man. You should make a video. It's no no that isn't I, awesome. So that's I actually mean, if... my Oh sorry. That your... that that is the best performing uh I, I have I have Squarespace as a sponsor occasionally on the channel, and the best performing video I did with them was my walkthrough of how I do that. And it's I love getting messages from people Uh, Years later, because that video went up two and a half years ago, I still get messages to this day of, hey, by the way, I just booked my first X amount client project using the proposal page. And you can do. You don't have to use Squarespace, of course. Like, there's, I think, Adobe Spark has a version. You can do it on WordPress. You can do it on any website builder. Wix probably too. Um, but you can Squarespace do it with whoever wants so. to
0: sponsor this podcast. Basically, <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: exactly. Um, exactly.
0: Yeah. No. Totally. I, I think that's an awesome tip. And it uh, to like follow through with something that I've said a million times on this show is like the the whole full stack creator concept that I like to push down people's throats of like the more things you can do in terms of creative skills, the more employable you will be. So even something I left out when I was saying a minute ago is audio as well. If you can show up and really make your audio sound great, like that is that is also huge because budgets, a lot of smaller mid-sized budgets are cutting out audio producers, which sucks. I mean, I don't like that. I, I want to keep audio specialists employed, but it's also just the reality of where the industry is going. So having that your ability to just show up as yourself and walk away with something that is solid is like that so many people should be aspiring to that you can there are so many jobs that you will be able to do if you can do it all yourself that if you only specialize in one niche you're gonna have a much harder time getting as many jobs um and yeah like having that sort of web uh that understanding of website production as well is such a big part of it, which you don't need anything technical anymore. I mean, yeah, like you say, it means just signing up and using uh, Levi's offer code. And then all of a sudden you can start, you know, um, like literally ending up getting more jobs. Uh, same thing in terms of design. If like, I don't know, it's, it, it's also, there's this balance of like, when do you hire somebody versus picking up the skill? So design is a good one. Um, if you are pitching a lot of clients and your designs kind of suck it can get in the way um so on one hand it's like i think it's great to pick up that skill but if you don't have it yet you don't want to be like losing jobs because you're not a great designer yet um so uh, i I guess I don't know. Do you have like a way you sort of navigate those things that you, you don't quite have the skill set yet, but you realize the importance in terms of getting the job done? Like do you end up hiring people and outsourcing
1: it? Do you just fight through it and watch some tutorials? Yeah, it's uh, it, it kind of goes with the it's like the ladder climbing process of wanting to get the projects that are that are higher value than you've done in the past but not necessarily always having the work to show that you could do it. And so in the kind of like growing stage of my production company, when I was trying to get like clients to pay me more for finished videos, I realized pretty quickly that I can't sell them on a product that I haven't been able to show them that I can make. And I can't show them that I can make it because I haven't actually made it yet. And I haven't made it yet Mm -hmm. because I haven't gotten paid from the last one. So I haven't bought that new set of lights. So my lighting sucks. So, you kind of get in this backwards loop where unless you have someone out there who's written you a $10,000 check to, to start off your business. And you, like, if you got to start from scratch, you're kind of stuck where you have to work a part-time job to save up enough money to get the first gear pieces. And then, so you've got the, the, the bare bones, but that's not enough to offer the production value that you aspire to. So I talk about the ladder technique where it's like, if you're at that $1,000 rung or below, When you get that project, because you should be able to convince someone, if you can put a video together, you should be able to convince, you know, whatever cousin that you're filming the wedding of that you can do it for about $1,000. Like, you shouldn't really be doing a finished video for less than that these days because of the quantity of time it takes. But if you can do that $1,000 video, I would say put everything you can into that to maximize production value so that way it looks like they paid $2,500 for it. So then the next time around when you can actually... When you can show someone, hey, I can do videos that look like $2,500 worth, if you can sell them on that, because that's what you can show you can do, if they pay you to do a $2,500 video, what I was doing at that time was taking all the money from the $2,500 video, putting it back into the production value, so that way I, and sometimes this was as simple as just buying another microphone, and sometimes it was, hey, actually, let's let's hire on a role like a set designer, so it's not always like linear outputs but do what you can. Don't just treat a $2,500 video like a $2,500 video that's just like, oh, this is just a a throwaway video. Actually try to do it as if they paid you five. And then when you did the $2,500 video as if they paid you five grand, then now you've got an example that looks as if they paid five grand for it. And so you can't, like those clients, usually you have to fire them after you work with them once, unless they're willing to grow with you, because if you're giving them a $5,000 product for for a $2,500 price tag, Like you can't keep doing that. So you have to either keep... (laughs) No, no, no. So that's like the latter technique. And I did that across 10 videos where every single one of them, I deliberately used money from the project, didn't really pay myself, but invested it into the gear or whatever I was missing out on at that time. And that brought me from, I think, a $500 video up to my first $10,000 project across 10 videos. And every time just like ratcheting it, like slowly doing that ratchet and... I think that headspace of, Hey, this might not be the most ideal project that I could possibly work on, but what about it? What could I do here? That would, that I could leverage forward that still reaches the goals that I'm getting paid for, but then I can use to leverage in my part portfolio to kind of take me to that, that next step in my career. What's your take on free work, especially
0: for somebody just getting started. Uh, I've been listening to yeah. clubhouse conversations lately and, People have a lot of takes, but what's yours.
1: I'm, I'm all about free on your own terms. So I think it's much better to find the people you want to work for, for free than waiting, waiting for them to come to you. It's the, it's pretty classic to get an like in the early stages, it's pretty classic for someone to offer like, Hey, can you come do this thing? We don't have a lot of money. I would say usually those are not good ideas. Uh, but what I love is. Hey, if there's a company that you really respect, offer, find a way that you could pitch them to do a project for them and come under your process. Because so much of what client work actually comes down to being is just having a good process. So it's not as simple as, hey, I can make a pretty visual thing. That should mean I make money. What it actually comes down to is businesses invest in things that solve problems that make them money. So in order to do that well, you actually need to have a process to discover this business that I'm working with, how do I make them money with the medium of video? Because if you can co- if you can transition the conversation into a value created for the company, that language makes it a lot easier for them to look at you as an investment and less of a cost. Because a cost you try to lower and bring down, it's like an expense. You're trying to lower your expenses. But it, an investment, if they put the proper allocation of resources into it, their return on that could be so much higher. So I think if there's a company, if you're willing to do free work because you don't have good examples, find a company that you're willing to do it for on your own terms and make sure when you do it on your own terms, you treat it like a paid project. So actually have a conversation with them about what are your goals and what are the problems you're facing as a business that you think we could solve with video. And then pitch back to them what you think as the visual creation professional, what your solution to that might be. And then in that conversation, sell them on the value created, go, Hey, if we do this, well, this will make you a lot of value in return. Do you agree? And then try to guesstimate based off the value that you can create for the business. Usually they should know, Hey, these are our problem areas. Like they're the expert of their own business. So just ask them for their expertise and then communicate back to them. Hey, if we're gonna make $50,000 of sales-ish from solving this specific question that your customers ask that we could do in this video, it's reasonable to invest five to $10,000 in this video. So, hey, I'm doing this for free, but actually like, make a proposal and put that number on there and cross it out because what you'll find is they will value the finished product so much more if they know what it is that you actually made for them and unfortunately the amount that they invest in it will treat how much they respect the final product. Cause if they think it's just a free yeah. thing, they might not try to leverage it as much so that like yeah, taking 900%. ownership of it and actually treating it like a paid client project and actually making a proposal and actually having that gut, like your, your, that, that gut dropping feeling of putting a number on the proposal and then crossing it out, do that. And then say, Hey, if this goes well, like, I would love to do this again and actually get paid this amount, but please don't tell anybody that you didn't pay me for Like, it. it need, like, make a contract. Like, tell them, don't tell them that this was free. And hey, if this goes well and you liked working with me, can I get a written uh, testimonial from you? And doing going about it in that way, I've had companies so blown away that I took it that seriously that I was doing a project pro bono for them uh, that I did end up getting paid work from them two years later. So it it wasn't instantaneous, but the benefits was I had a finished project that I like. And then two years later, they were so blown away by my process that they actually brought me back. And that, that kind of seriousness, you like, you, you shouldn't be doing tons of free projects. I think in your early days, if you're doing like the three, the three to five at most, if you treat them with that level of intensity, I think the the fruit that you'll get out of that is so much more than just some random going. Hey, I've got this music video. Can you come shoot it for free? (laughs) Yeah, man. No, that's like I'm totally on
0: board with everything you're saying. Like, I I think there's a lot of confusion around like what is the appropriate thing to do when you're working in this free space. I mean, the the question I had heard asked the other day again. I was just listening to eavesdropping on Clubhouse conversations, and somebody was like, "Well, you know, I don't really have much of a portfolio yet, so should I?" be approaching companies like adidas was their example and uh offering my services for free and i was just like you know i was just listening i was banging my head against the wall like no please don't do that (laughs) like the how much would value would adidas value a free video that you sent them if you want to do that kind of work there's a space for that and it's it's called like Mm -hmm. doing spec work which is like a great way to practice and I think can be really valuable. It's like, you just call up a bunch of friends, you get them to work for free. Cause nobody's going to get, because once nobody's getting paid, everybody's more willing to volunteer their time <laughs> and just try to make the most epic, amazing thing that you can, and maybe it's framed around the idea that it's an Adidas commercial or it's an Apple commercial or something like you pick a theme. And, uh, it's about that thing to show that you could do it, but the idea of just like cold calling and saying like, Hey, can I do this for you for free? It's like, just do it for yourself for free. If you're, if it's for free, you know, if you need the resources, then like, like then it can be helpful. Yeah. Basically try to find somebody that will cover the costs of resources, like you were saying, where you can reinvest it into the either future projects or into that project. So you could make something that you couldn't have made out of your own pocket. Um, but if there isn't that benefit for you, like if you're not getting something out of it, just make your own thing. Um, because why oh, not? Yeah. You're, like, you're the, you know, like I think it's really not great when people spend a lot of time doing, doing free work for companies that they don't really have a connection to even. And again, a bit of an exception, I would say, is like I think you can do it in a way that can make sense for friends. Like we do favors for friends, where it's like, uh, you know, we, we know like that our usual rates wouldn't really work for you based on like, you're just trying to shoot a quick LinkedIn portrait. Uh, you're a great person. We'll just shoot it for you. You know, we're not going to like charge you a studio fee and like an hourly rate and all this just for one shot that you need is like, we we're, we're close, whatever. Um, but kind of understanding that difference. And, and, and I, I don't love doing that kind of work at like a really steep discount. It's almost like it's either free or it's our rate. That's often how we deal with yep. it. Yep.
1: Yeah, it that's that's so key like the the devalu the discounted rates uh, is just a really it's a really sticky situation that that I I haven't had many situations cuz then it doesn't get appreciated for what it actually is and then you might find yourself in this place where they're treating you like they're paying you. Like you try to do this favor for a friend and if you're doing it at this massively discounted rate, suddenly they start yeah. treating you like they're like, it. I've I haven't had an experience well, th- where a discounted rate goes well. <laughs> <laughs> totally.
0: No, and it, it just changes the structure of the relationships. Once there's money involved, mm-hmm. it's a different interaction. Like if you invite your neighbor over for dinner, which I guess we're not doing right now, you invite them over for dinner you (laughs) give them free dinner and you just like you serve it to them there's no expectation like this is a friendly gesture this is within a relationship structure that we're used to being no there's no costs involved here you pour them a drink Mm -hmm. that you know it well if you were to order this vodka tonic at the bar you'd be paying ten dollars but you're in my home and i'm going to keep a tab. like this you don't keep tabs of it you just you know you they're they're in your home and you treat them like a guest um if all of a sudden you're charging for it and you are you become a restaurant, if you're like, well, you're a friend, so you can come over for dinner and I'll only charge you $7. Now it's like they're going to start rating the service that like, oh, well, you know, you were a little slow getting my cocktail. And like, it, it's either should be a, a friendship-based relationship where that, that expectation is what is operating, is like we know what free means or we know what paying means. So if they're paying you, you've got to, this got they've got to be paying you enough that like you can meet their expectations without feeling like you're not being compensated. You know what I mean? So I don't know. It's a complicated thing, but I, I definitely think, um, it can be tempting to make some wrong decisions early on that, you know, end up where with both parties being frustrated.
1: Oh yeah. And I, I think it's so key to refine what your process is. Like such a, such a freeing thing for me in the start of my freelance career, because the reality is so much of what we're doing, even as small production teams, fits better into the language of general freelancing than the production hierarchy of, of larger studio-based whatever's and agencies. Uh, a helpful thing for me was just realizing if I want to get paid like a professional, I have to behave like one. And the way that professionals <laughs> behave tip. is they have process. Yeah, the, it's that simple. Just behave like one. Uh, it's like having a process and then taking ownership that when you're getting paid for a project, like the things that go bad, there's almost always something you could have done to have mitigated or made that problem not be as big as it is or make it non-existent. So I was around so many graphic designers at a to- at the time, and I think in the like early 2010s there was so much of this vibe of like man the client doesn't know the client's wrong they're so annoying <laughs> yeah like there's a lot of that attitude going on with the graphic designers I knew and I accidentally took on a little bit of that headspace in my first like client projects that I did and it was just exhausting because I could find so many things that I did not like about the client or why they were wrong and then I kind of flipped that on its head off the advice of my friend Sean and he was saying, you know what? Just take ownership of every step. And if there's anything that you didn't like, take a note about that and just implement it next time. So his whole thing was like, there's no clients from hell. There's only freelancers who take on clients from hell. So it's like, or maybe that, maybe I flipped that phrase. I said, essentially the principle is like most of the projects that you're working on, if you are actually taking ownership of how it's going, there's a lot of things you can do to just, Make sure that it goes smoothly and you're following a process. Like I just get so fed up when people complain about the revisions process and I go, okay, so at what point in your process when you're pitching to them, did you communicate what your revision process is? And they go, oh, no, 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 we, right. we don't do that. And we, we just send it over on Frame.io and then we get back 30 timestamp alterations they want. I'm like, well, of course you give them a timestampable tool with no restraints and of course, like you you send an email, hey, here's the first draft, what do you think? And if that's your email to them, of <laughs> yeah, course right. they're gonna go, well, well what le- do I think? What did can- they do wrong here?
0: Can you get specific on what you would do for that feedback loop? Like how do you deal with that? Like here's, here's the first draft, what do you think? How do you frame that to get more useful feedback?
1: Yeah, if I'm ever sending an email with a link to the video that I finished as my first draft that says, hey, here's the video, what do you think? Like, I'll delete that immediately because it's it's not the right way to go about it. Like, picture, I got my wisdom teeth pulled out in my early 20s, and if I was waking up from that surgery because I was knocked out, and the doctor's, like, tapping me on the forehead going, hey, so we pulled the teeth out, like, how did we do? Did we do a good job? Like, did we mess anything up? Did we miss anything? Like, that would just freak me out, right? Because in that context, they're the medical professional, so... For me, if I'm sending my video to a client and I wanna be treated like I'm a professional, I better behave like one. So the, the two things that I mitigate this with is right out of the gate, when I'm like in the contract signing phase and we're going over final numbers, I just make sure that they understand that this is what our revision process looks like. And I'm pretty clear in the real world documentary getting turned into promo video world, There's a lot of subjective decisions that get made. And so I make it clear to them out of the gate. The first draft that I'm sending you, I'm intending to be the best version. I think we could make as the kind of like our starting point. So I'm not sending you a version that I just half put together and I'm intending to workshop a bunch. I have spent weeks making sure that this is what the the best thing we can do with the footage we got on the day. So. That's what I'm saying we're gonna set out to do in the contract signing phase. So then I'm telling them, hey, when we go and do revisions, what we're looking for is, is there any red flags here? Um, like, is there titles that are spelt wrong? Is there for some reason why this music just really isn't working for you and you just can't stomach it? Is there, Is there—is there brand points that we somehow like messed up? Like I'm looking for red flags. I'm not necessarily looking for um, like subjective opinions of, hey, maybe we put these shots here or those, like that's what they're hiring me for. And if they don't want me to do it, then hire someone else kind of thing. And I'm not trying to be stuck up, but it like, depending on the client, they might not know why you did things a certain way. And it's like, it can be kind of a a touchy dynamic there at the end. So if that's communicated up front, when we then get to the stage where the first draft is sent over in that email, instead of saying, hey, here's the video, what do you think? What I say is, oftentimes there is things that didn't go well, and that's pretty obvious. So what I'll do is I'll go, hey, here are the areas where this video meets the goals that we set out to do at the start of this project. Um, We set out with these intentions. This was the problems we're trying to solve. And I structured the video in this way to accomplish that. And I used this interview voice more than this interview because I thought it fit the brand messaging more and it helped me craft the story better. And I walked them through why we ended up with what we ended up. And then oftentimes there's a little section at the bottom of going, hey, I really wish that we had more shots of the headquarters here. We don't have them. A way around this is we could add an additional shoot day and go back and do this, but we don't have to do that additional route. I think it's really strong as it is. I'd love to hear from you and your team. uh, If you're feeling the same way, that's like that kind of email sent nine times out of 10 gets me a way more positive interaction experience. Even if there is some things where they go, Oh, Hey, can we fiddle with this or that? And how you deal with revision rates or the mechanics of how you do that revision process, I think is fine. But I personally don't send videos on a review platform with time stampable stuff for most of my clients. There are certain clients that that specific style of project it's more linear and and it makes way more sense to have time stampable revision tools. But in the subjective world of like documentary storytelling, I do not give them those tools because I do not want some marketing person at some agency to go oh hey i need to do my job which is give the artist feedback that is like the worst case scenario but those are kind of the two things that i do to mitigate that yeah
0: no i think that's all great and i end up doing some similar things like we basically will include usually we'll say there's basically two rounds of revisions in our base Mm -hmm. rate um and then the like the only if we're ever giving a discount on a rate where they're getting something pretty favorable, part of it is built in. It's like either no revisions or only one round of, and we like qualified right. like simple revisions. Um, and that's kind of at our discretion, but like that it can become the biggest time sink, like the thing that makes you regret a project is how long you're spending on revisions. Cause sometimes it's not even that the each change in the edit takes that long. It's that you have to open up the pull the hard drive out of the drawer and plug it in and open up the project and relink the files. Like it's it's just the getting back into the vibe of like, wait, which what was the last version of like final, final 2.0.3 that, you know, was the one I sent to them last time. Like just finding your place can be half the time, especially if this is over several months. So Um, yeah, it's even still a lesson that we should learn ourselves of putting even more constraints or, um, clarity of communication, like, like you're saying of, uh, making sure that the client understands this. And also like you're saying, like so many creative, creative professionals don't understand how much they're in the service industry that like. Just put yourself in the position of hiring a creative. Like you want to feel taken care of. It is. It, it's such a, a human hiring experience. You're not buying an iPad here. They, they don't get to walk home with a physical product. What they get at the end is a very soft and squishy thing. It's a like a video or a photo that is is subjectively good or bad. Like they they'll look at it and they'll they're probably watching it. Like, I don't, at first they're either they're blown away or they're like, is this good? Is this not good? I don't really know. Cause I don't hire people to do videos all day long. And so you've got to make them feel good about that experience. It's the same as if somebody's going in and buying a suit or a tuxedo better yet, they, they never do this. They, they they're not used to being measured and um you know having like dressing up like this. Like they feel uncomfortable. They're like I don't know when I look good in a tux because I've never worn one. I, you know, last time I wore one was my bar mitzvah, and uh, I don't know how how to do this as an adult. And if the tailor or the the salesperson doesn't know how to put them at ease and make them feel confident about that tuxedo they're about to walk out in public in they're gonna feel like an ass like they you know, they won't they you want them to leave feeling cool like they they're James Bond now. Um, Same with their video, you want them to feel like they're a Hollywood producer. Now they just hired some hotshot director, cinematographer, uh, all in one creator that made them look super cool, and they should feel good about it. And if they walk away feeling like you didn't listen to them, just didn't respond to their emails promptly, didn't, um, you know, uh, especially upfront before it was shot, didn't try to understand what they're really trying to do. It'll be a bad experience for them and it's not all their fault if they're complaining. Um, so I don't know. I, I feel like off, often creators can pass responsibility for a bad client experience more than they necessarily should. There's also still bad oh. clients out there, but, <laughs>
1: Yeah, oh, and I, I have certainly had client experiences that that are it's just the most bizarre thing in the world, and I'm just like, get me out of here. But the, the headspace of if things are going bad, instead of blaming, asking myself, what could I have done differently in this situation, that might just sound like so trivial and so self-helpy, but that headspace has made my freelance experience so much more positive where... Now, like I used to do everything alone, but now that I work more with contractors and teammates, like I catch myself with this with them. And I I try to like foster that attitude where we're never trying to beg on the client because I mean, it's so much more rewarding to ask yourself, how could I have like flipped this around? And we just forget that when someone's spending company money, like the poor person in the marketing department is spending company money to hire you, we forget that. They are trying not to get fired, <laughs> you know? Oh, and yeah, it's for sure. It's risky every time they're making a bet on this artist. And especially in that pitching proposal stage, I think going in with that headspace of this is another human that doesn't want to lose their job by spending money on the wrong person. Like that, like again, I love that shift to more of a service-based thing of like you're not trying to coddle them or be manipulative, but you really want to like make it clear that there is a pathway we could go down to get to an achievable result and I'm I'm your person to do it. Like that kind of confidence and then taking them through that process and giving them the, the tools to talk to their boss about why the thing they made was worth the money they spent on it. That is that, like if I do that part well, that all but guarantees repeat work from them. Like if I can nail the execution of, give this person the tools to talk to their boss well that's like almost guaranteeing repeat work which is like i mean if you enjoyed the the type of client it was like why not get repeat work right
0: yeah 100% and it, it's also this like if you are going to do a bad job like if you're going to slack off and not try at a job <laughs> the time to do that is before you take the client like say no to that client if you're not going to to, if you're gonna like don't take their money and then not do it or like or take their money do a great job and never work with them again um and tell all your friends uh you know it's it, that was a <laughs> impossible client to work with uh, be careful yeah. if you're gonna work with them those two things are okay to do but once you're in it and you are you you know you're you're gonna send them the invoice they are gonna pay you do your absolute best to do a good job of it you know like you, you gotta and There's just too many people I see that feel like they're in the middle of a job and as the person being paid in this relationship, they're owed something from the client like that their creativity needs to be able to flourish and it's not working the right way. It's like, you know, if you're hiring contract, we're doing renovation right now. So it's a little bit on my mind, like you're hiring contractors. It's the exact same thing. It's like, once you're committed to them you know, we've hired great contractors and not so great contractors. And it's like when they're in the middle of it and you know, like, okay, they don't want to work with us again. We don't want to work with them again. They got to finish the job and they've got to, they can't just like start slacking off halfway through um, because I'm not going to get the, they're not going to get a disc. I'm not going to pay them a lower rate because they did a 80% of the job. Like they're still going to get paid everything. And they've got to finish the job that they'd committed to. Um, We can never work together again. That can be fine. But um, still gotta finish it. So I don't know. I th- I think in the just because we have the word th- creative in the in uh, the word creator uh, doesn't mean you get to be a uh, you know a, a diva artist. I, I mean, that's just me. <laughs> that's my oh, man, uh, would, That's my advice
1: for the day. Being that uh, I'm curious, what the like worst manifestation of my artist must win version of me is like i i I would love to picture a world where i'm stamping my foot going no we have to do it this like that version of me just seems so cringy and i hope i don't accidentally end up there (laughs) someday if my head gets too big that would be that would be devastating oh geez i have a feeling
0: you're you're doing good just based on the what i know about you levi you're probably doing great um if people want to see more of your work where should they find you
1: Levi Allen. Search that up on the intertubes and uh, you'll probably find my YouTube channel. And if you click to the homepage, it's got a pinned. my, My main documentary piece that's kind of the flagship thing I've made is pinned right there, free to view. It's worth the watch. Cool. Thanks, Levi.